Well, good morning, guys. And those of you that don't know me, my name is Sean, and welcome to our Apologetics Sunday School class. So this week, we're starting on the existence of God. And I realized this morning, uh, I have about, nope, not about, I have 13 pages worth of notes. So we will not cover it all this morning. Uh, we're going to go over the existence of God in, in quite a few weeks. So the first part, why? Why should we even believe in the existence of God? Why does it matter to us? Well, reason one, uh, life is ultimately meaningless without God, right? What's the point? Uh, if God does not exist, your life is doomed and in death, and it ultimately doesn't matter how you live. In the end, it makes no ultimate difference whether you existed or not at all. Sure, your life might have a relative significance in that you perhaps influenced others or affected the course of history, uh, but ultimately mankind is doomed to perish in the heat death of the universe. It makes no difference who you are or what you do. Your life is completely inconsequential. So what type of idea is that going to, to lead to if that's your idea? If God doesn't exist and life is meaningless? Well, it, it started to get popular um, in the 90s, you know, just... If it feels good, do it. Um, it breeds this type of individual that, hey, it doesn't matter, true for you, not true for me, that idea, right? So without God, we live a life without hope, reason number two. If God doesn't exist, then we must ultimately live without hope. If there's no God, then there's ultimately no hope of deliverance from the shortcomings of our finite existence. For example, if there's no hope of deliverance for evil, although many people ask how God could create a world involving evil, by far most of the suffering in the world is due to man's own inhumanity. The horror of the two world wars during the last century effectively destroyed the 19th century naive optimism about human progress. I know there's a lot of... If God does not exist, then we're locked without hope in a world filled with gratuitous and undeemed suffering. And there's no hope from deliverance from evil at all. Three, if God exists, well, this is the most important one. You can absolutely know his love personally. On the other hand, if he does exist, then not only is there meaning and hope, but there's also the possibility of coming to know God and his love personally. So think about it. That is, the infinite God should love you and want to be your personal uh, savior. This would be the highest status of a, that a human being could absolutely enjoy. Now, admittedly, None of this actually proves or shows the existence of God, right? It just shows what life would be like without his existence or the logical conclusions of it. But it does show that it makes a tremendous difference whether or not he does actually exist. Therefore, even if the evidence for and against the existence of God were absolutely equal, the rational thing to do, I think, actually, is to believe in him. That is to say, if it were, to me, positively irrational when the evidence is equal to prefer death, futility, and despair over hope, meaningfulness, and happiness. So now we get into the proofs of the existence of God. How do we actually prove the existence of God? Well, if you want to have a lot of fun, uh, when you're talking to somebody, ask them to prove the non-existence of God, to prove their point. I see a couple of people chuckling. It's a philosophical impossibility. You cannot prove the non-existence of a thing. In order to prove the non-existence of a thing, what? You have to go back in all time, through all records, in all places. Those are three attributes of God, right? So it's, it's interesting, but God makes some sense of the origin of the universe. So 
Have you asked yourself where the universe actually came from? Why everything exists instead of absolutely nothing? Typically, atheists have said the universe is just eternal and that's all. So, have you guys ever heard the term, the cosmological argument? That's what this is. It starts to prove the existence of God through the existence of the universe, through nature. Romans 1, basically. This was first formed years ago uh, by Aristotle. So surely, this is unreasonable, meaning that the universe is absolutely eternal. It's always existed, and it's always its thing. But just think about it for a minute. If the universe never had a beginning at all, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is actually infinite. But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number leads to self-contradictions. For example, what's infinity minus infinity? What's that, Mike? Right, which is a contradictory term. So this goes to show you that infinity is actually just a construct of the mind rather than an actual tangible number in our given system. Does that make sense? Yeah, sort of? Okay. Well, we'll get, we'll get into that a little bit more. So, but that entails that since past events are not just ideas but are real, the number of past events must be finite. So they have to be limited, right? The, the series of past events can't go back forever. Rather, the universe must have began to exist. We'll get into the, the physical reasons why this has to be true, but now we're just dealing with the philosophy of it. So this conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astrophysics and astronomy. In fact, in 2003, uh, Arvid Bord, Alan Guth, and Alexander Vilkin were able to prove that any universe which is, on average, in the state of cosmic expansion cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. They said it like this. It is said that an argument in what convinces reasonable men in a proof is what it takes to convince even an unreasonable man. With the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. Actually, they have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. So the problem was nicely captured by a guy named Anthony Kenny of Oxford University, not a Christian institution, in case you're wondering. He writes, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. So if you guys remember last week, from nothing, nothing comes, right? I mean, a simple tenet. So we can summarize this argument, the basic cosmological argument, as this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. Does that make sense? Okay. It has what? A cause. A beginning. So given the truth of the two premises, the conclusion necessarily follows like this. From the very nature of the case, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, and timeless, and immaterial being which created the universe. Okay, we'll prove all of those uh, in a bit here. It must be uncaused because we've seen that there cannot be an infinite regress of causes. Does that make sense? You have to have an uncaused first cause, okay? It must be timeless, therefore changeless, at least without the universe, because it created time. Let me put it this way. Do we have... We don't. I was looking for a painting. So imagine if you have a painting on the wall, okay? <laughs> and, and with that painting, the artist is standing right here. Now, the point of the painting, the artist has to be outside of the painting in order to create it, right? The artist cannot be inside of the painting creating the own painting within itself. 
Does that make sense? You guys have all seen, um, it's a famous drawing, you know, of the hand drawing itself and it comes out, right? That doesn't work as far as creation goes. So because it also created space, meaning the uncaused first cause, it must transcend space as well as therefore the material and not being physical, okay? So anything that we see today that is created or has a cause, whatever or whomever created it, and we believe it as God, cannot be part of that. So time is a created thing, space is a created thing, and material is a created thing. So that gives us three natural attributes of what God must be. He must be timeless, he must be outside of space, and he must be immaterial, not physical, right? So moreover, I would also argue it must be personal. You have to have a personal creator. Now this one gets fun. For how else could a timeless cause give rise to a um, temporal, meaning physical effect like the universe, like the universe? If the cause were a mechanically operating set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without the effect. Okay, I'm gonna give some illustrations, I know, <laughs> to, to flesh this out a little bit more. For example, the cause of water's freezing is what? The temperature being below zero, centigrade. If the temperature were below zero from eternity past, it was always below zero, then any water that was around from, from then until now would be frozen from all of eternity. You follow me so far? Okay. It would be impossible for the water to begin to freeze just as a finite time ago. It would always be frozen. So if the cause is permanently present, meaning absolute zero, permanently present from all eternity, then the effect should also be permanently present as well. The only way for the cause to actually be timeless and the effect to begin in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses outside of, of the effect to create without any prior determining conditions. Let me give some more examples. Imagine a man sitting from eternity and he could freely will to stand up at any time that he wants to. Thus, we're brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to a personal cause. Because there has to be a choice in order to do it. Does that make sense? Sort of? Okay. <laughs> a little bit. So what you're saying is, if there's a choice involved, it has to be personal. Yes. Because, and we'll get into that when we get into evolution, um, because of the laws of thermodynamics and physics, you have to see that anything that happens outside of those laws in order to create them has to be a personal effect. It's not part of the, the random acts of the universe. Um, like I said, we'll get into that more when we get into evolution. But So God makes sense of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. During the last 40 years or so, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life Depends on what? Depends on a complex and delicate balance of uh, initial conditions of a universe. So complex. We'll get into that. Eventually, intelligent life might evolve, maybe, but we now know that our existence is balanced on literally a knife's edge at this point. The existence of intelligent life depends upon a conspiracy of initial conditions uh, which must be fine-tuned to a degree that is literally incomprehensible and incalculable. How much? Well, hold on. So the fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed in mathematical equations. Anyone a, a math buff here, or is everyone just, no? Awesome, good. <laughs> okay. 
you find appearing in them certain constants, like the gravitational constant, right? These constants are not determined by the laws of nature. The laws of nature are consistent with a wide range of values for these constants. Second, in addition to these constants, there are certain arbitrary quantities which are just put in as an initial condition in which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy, um, does anyone know what entropy is? Go ahead, Lynn. Right. So, you know, if you park your car for 60 years and never do anything to it, does it get better? No, it degrades. That's part of what's called the law of entropy, okay? The amount of entropy or the balance between matter and antimatter in the universe. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinary narrow range of life-permitting values. Were these constant, or, excuse me, constants or quantities to be altered by hair's breadth, the life-permitting balance would be destroyed and life actually would not cease, would not be able to exist. How much so? Okay, here's some numbers for you. The physicist PCW Davies has calculated that a change in the strength of gravity or of the atomic weak force by only one part in 10 to the 100th power would have been, would have been enough to prevent a life-permitting universe. Okay, how big is that number? 10 to the 100th, and he gets, it, it's even further, 10 to the 120th power, okay? Does anyone play chess? <laughs> Any chess players, anyone like to play chess? Mike, okay, good. That number is uh, equatable to literally the number of all possible chess moves forever within a chess game. What is that number? How big is it? Uh, it's literally called 100 octavictintillion. <laughs> we don't even have a reasonable name for that number. Now, to give you an idea of how big that is, that's just one possible change in the gravitational force of the gravitational constant of force in the origin of the universe. Just that would have been enough to have not permitted life in our universe. Any life, okay? Roger Penrose of Oxford has calculated that the odds of the Big Bang's low entropy condition existing by chance are on the order at of uh, 10 to the 125th power. Penrose comments, I cannot even recall seeing anything else in physics whose accuracy is known to approach even remotely a figure like this one part in 10 to the 125th power. And it's not just each constant or quantity which must be exquisitely fine-tuned, their ratios to one another must also be finely tuned. So improbability is multiplied by improbability by improbability until our minds are reeling in incomprehensible numbers. Now, this leads us to the next conclusion on the existence of God. So there's three possibilities on why the universe exists, right? And that we have presence of life in the universe. So what do we have? Um, the first alternative holds that there is some unknown theory of everything. Anyone come across that? It's an acronym, T-O-E, theory of everything, which would explain the way the universe is. It had to be that way, and there was really no chance or little chance of the universe's not being life-permitting, okay? Well, by contrast, the second alternative states that the fine-tuning is due entirely to chance. It's just an accident that the universe is life-permitting, and we're the lucky beneficiaries of it. The third alternative rejects both of those tenets and accounts in favor of an intelligent mind behind the cosmos who designed the universe to actually permit life. So which of these alternatives is actually most plausible? Well, the first alternative 
seems extraordinary and plausible. There's just no physical reason why these constants and quantities should have the values as they do, as PCW Davis states. Quote, even if the laws of physics were unique, it doesn't follow that the physical universe itself is actually unique. The laws of physics must be augmented by cosmic initial conditions. There's nothing in present ideas about laws of initial conditions remotely to suggest that their consistency with the laws of physics would imply uniqueness. Far from it. It seems then that the physical universe does not have to be the way it is. It could have been otherwise. So what he's saying, the theory of everything, they're saying that the universe always is, always was, it's just, it's just the way it is. They're saying that doesn't work. Because we have so much variability, there's no reason to exist that it has, has to be this way. So the theory of everything, in order for it to be true, the universe has to be this way. And they're saying, no, it doesn't. We have so many alternatives, it doesn't have to be this way. Yeah, Gabe. Is, it, is that completely separate from the, the fact that it has a beginning, therefore it has to... Or is this, this sounds like, because it's always been this way, it's always had to be this way, that sounds like it existed for an infinity type. Right, exactly. And that there is no beginning. There is no so first so cause. Does Cho say that there's, it's just always existed? Mm-hmm. But we've already said that it can't always exist. Right. And even what we observe says it can't always exist. That's correct. Okay. So it, it's, it's kind of a... a I don't want to say this, especially since I'm being recorded. It's a, it's a bad premise, <laughs> right? Because even if... Yeah, that's a nicer way to put it. <laughs> it's a false premise. So even if, though, right? Um, uh, okay, to step back. The idea that the universe always existed the way it was because it has to be that way doesn't even fit science at all. And you can go far science where they completely deny the existence of God, but they still have to admit the cause of the universe. They happen to call it the Big Bang. Do we see evidences of a finite time in which the universe was uh, created into being? We do. What are the evidences of that? Well, since the advent of the Hubble telescope, we're able to see that the universe is still expanding, right? We see things happening. We see um, stars dying a lot. They're called supernovas. So if these things are dying, the universe is expanding, Someone had to wind up this machine, right? Someone had to purposefully bring about this energy in order for this to happen. It can't happen in and of itself, and it can't just always be. It's a, it's a clever um, just mental gymnastics to say that the universe always existed, and that's, that's all there is. Okay, so what about the second alternative? Yeah? You say that everything that always exists. God, yeah. right. And so if we say there is something that always exists, why can't there be other things that always exist? That's a good question. And I know what you're talking about in the mm-hmm. universe. You're giving that as an example, and you say, well, the universe didn't always exist, and you've given reasons for that mm-hmm. on a physical basis, level telescope, on an intellectual basis, on a spiritual basis. But we do know things do always exist. At least one thing does always exist. So how can we not know other things don't always exist? And how do we reconcile it? So we're asking the wrong questions when it comes to um, that argument that I'm saying that the universe hasn't always existed, but I am saying that God has always existed. But when we're taking a look at the universe, we see these are restricted to time, space, and matter, right? So you're asking, in my opinion, the wrong question. How can you say that God has always existed? Well, God is outside of both time, space, and matter. 
which is the whole premise of the existence of the universe. If we can wrap our minds around something not confined to those three elements of time, space, and matter, we can then come to the conclusion, the rational conclusion, of an uncaused first cause. But our mind starts to kind of wig out at this point because we start to get into infinity, right? Which we know we can't understand. It's just a construct of our mind because here we're saying infinity doesn't exist in real world. But on the other hand, we're saying, well, God is infinite. He's, he's eternal and he's infinitely um, powerful and great. Am I losing anyone yet? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So to, to really answer Mike's question, to, to kind of bring it down, we're saying that the universe can't have always existed because we see it winding down, right? We, we see a point in which it, it occurred. So how can we say that God has always existed? Because what we're seeing in the universe is time, space, and matter, all three of those constructs winding down. And that is not what we use to describe God. We don't use him in any of those forms to describe God's existence, and especially his eternality. So the logical conclusion is you have to have an uncaused first cause, just the example of the artist with the painting. You cannot have the artist inside of the painting painting itself. Our minds can't comprehend that because it doesn't work in our current construct. Does that kind of help, Mike? No? <laughs> Gabe? Uh, well, so you're talking about the theory of everything and saying that this has to be this way, right? That's what they were saying. And you say, well, we know that that's not true because there's too much variability. Right. But then you also say that God has to be personal because of these things. So that would mean, that would lend, if God has to be the way he is, or this external being, whatever mm -hmm. it is, we haven't come quite called God yet, but... Oh, it'll be a while. This uncaused cause has to be personal. Well, that would mean that there's no variability with that uncaused cause, or else he couldn't have to be a certain way. That's correct. Okay. Right. And the Bible defines that exactly that way, right? Yeah. Sure, that there is a purposeful, um, creative response to the universe and to all um, matter. Not that it just happened by chance, but it was by a very specific design, right? It, we're going to get into this a little bit more as far as why this ends up being personal and what that looks like. Um, but the best analogy that I can give is if you wanted to create a vehicle. You can have just a bunch of random parts, or if you are setting out to design a very specific vehicle for a very specific purpose, i.e. a Jeep Wrangler for four buying, right? You put very different parts in that because it's designed for a very specific purpose. And we see that with universe and life, that it starts to lend towards a very, very specific purpose, not just accidental life and so it, it will be whatever it is. So would a better term right now be intentional? Yes. This personal gets a little yeah. personal. Yeah. <laughs> right now, it's just intentional, right? For now, yeah, until we, in, yeah. in later weeks, yeah. And I forgot to set the timer on my phone. What time do I have to stop talking? 10.30. 10.30? Okay. So what about the second alternative? That's the fine-tuning of the universe is due to chance. Remember the first one, the theory of everything, that it always is, always has been, and 
there's no, um, no other way. It has to be that way. And then the other one is it's just by pure happenstance, absolute chance that the universe is the way it is, perfectly suited for life. Um, but hold on, okay. So the problem with this alternative is that the odds against the universe being life permitting are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. Even though there will be a huge number of life permitting universes lying within the cosmic landscape, nevertheless, the number of life permitting worlds will be unfathomably tiny uh, compared to the entire landscape so that the existence of a life-permitting universe is completely fantastically improbable. Students or laymen who biblically assert, quote, it could have happened by chance, simply have no conception of the fantastic precision of the fine-tuning requisite for life. They would never embrace such a hypothesis in any other area of their lives. For example, okay, in order to explain how there came to be overnight a car in your driveway, so let's get into this one. It's even worse than that, a car appearing. Imagine the improbability of a car fully assembling itself, even if you had all the individual parts laid out. Nope, keeps getting worse. The parts have to manufacture themselves first. Still worse yet. The chemicals to form the steel and the plastic have to manufacture themselves. Still worse. Then the fundamental elements have to form by themselves, then join. Nope, still worse. Then we have the fundamental elements somehow forming with no building blocks present to do it. Then they combine to perfectly form the chemical steel plastics with no manufacturing. Then they arrange into the individually complex pieces, such as fuel injectors, master cylinders. Then they perfectly assemble themselves into a working car in your driveway. Given any amount of time, can that happen? No. See, time becomes the magic wand for this type of view, right? We used to believe in it when we were very, very little. How did those stories used to start out? Yep, a long time ago, far, far away. So what can you ascertain if you hear that? A fairy tale is coming next. So we have our resident physician here, Mike. How difficult is it, do you think, the human body composed of all of its various parts to have happened by complete random chance? Say, don't even take the human body, say the eyeball. Millions of proteins in the body coming together randomly to form a workable protein is equivalent to filling the entire world full of silver dollars to a height of 10 feet deep. There's one gold dollar amongst all those silver dollars, and you have one chance to pick it out. That's the chance of one protein coming together. That, that's not a body. That's not even life. That's just a protein. <laughs> so, Sean, let me ask you a question now. So, what happens to your theory when a Martian lands from another planet? Right. Does that disprove God now? No, not at all. Because life existing outside of Earth certainly doesn't disprove God. That's not what we're saying. We are saying that God is the originator of life, wherever that happens to be. The idea that it happens by chance or that it always was by itself doesn't fit with the evidence that we're seeing. And actually, a Martian landing on Earth would further prove my point, because how did that thing come into being? Did the, you know, if life here on this planet cannot evolve itself, how in the world did that one? On an extremely hospitable planet, right? And, and then we can, later on, if we want to, we can extrapolate the odds of life occurring in any one planet at any one time, and then we can take a look at the known planets and then figure out the odds of that. So no, it would actually prove our point larger.
Does that make sense? Okay. So some people have tried to escape this problem that we really shouldn't be surprised at the finely tuned conditions of the universe. For if the universe were not fine-tuned, then we shouldn't be here to be surprised about it. Okay, does anyone see the absurdity of this one yet? Hold on, I got some analogies here. So given that we are here, and we should expect the universe to be fine-tuned, but such reasoning is logically fallacious. We can show this by means of a parallel uh, illustration. Can anyone guess what we talked about last week, which logical fallacy this one is? Given that we're here, we should expect the universe to be fine-tuned. Exactly, right? So imagine you're traveling abroad and you're arrested on trumped-up drug charges and dragged in front of a firing squad of a squad of 100 trained marksmen, all with rifles aimed at your heart to be executed. You hear the command given, ready, aim, fire. Then, boom, 100 rifles go off simultaneously. And then you observe that you're still alive, that all of the 100 trains, trained marksmen missed. Now what do you conclude? Under this premise, well, I guess I really shouldn't be surprised that they all missed. After all, if they hadn't all missed, then I wouldn't be here to be surprised about it. Given that I'm here, I should expect them all to miss. <laughs> right? Okay, now you guys are getting it, how this is just, it gets weird. Well, of course not. You would immediately suspect that they all missed on purpose, that the whole thing was a setup engineered by, for some reason by someone. So while you wouldn't be surprised that you don't observe that you are dead, you'd be very, very surprised indeed that you do observe that you are alive. In the same way, given the incredible improbability of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, it's reasonable to conclude that there is not due to chance, but actually due to design. So in order to rescue the alternative of chance, its proponents have therefore been forced to adopt a hypothesis that there exists an infinite number of randomly ordered universes composing of a sort of world ensemble or multiverses, of which our universe is just a part. Now, we went over the possibility of infinite, right? We went over the possibility of how difficult it is for life to form. So the idea that there's infinite number of universes, infinite number of life-forming planets, it's just absurd. I mean, it, it really, really is a fairy tale at that point. When you're taking a look at the improbability of an actual infinite happening here where we see life, and that's so astronomically improbable to just say, well, it's happening in uh, perpetuity with different universes and different worlds. It just, it's nuts. It, it's the epitome of man running away from God. They're trying to grasp at any theory that they possibly can in order to not be held accountable to a creator God. So once again, the view that Christian theists have always held that there is an intelligent designer for the universe seems to make much more sense than the atheistic view that the universe just happens to be, by chance, fine-tuned to an incomprehensible precision for the existence of intelligible life. So we can summarize the second argument like this. One, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. It is not due to physical necessity or chance, therefore it is actually due to design. Now here's one that uh, is definitely on the hot topic for today. God makes sense of objective moral values in the world. Now, does anyone here disagree that we have objective morality? Or, or do I need to define the terms? Do you guys know what I mean when I say objective morality? Um, objective morality means that there are certain moral uh, behaviors, certain moral constructs, regardless of whatever you're, you, 
wherever you happen to live, or cultural. They transcend culture. There are some things in morality that are always, always, always true, regardless of what culture you happen to be in. What are some of those things? <laughs> right. Violence. So does God exist? If God does not exist, then objective moral values by themselves do not exist. To say that there are objective moral values is to say that something is right or wrong independently of whether anyone believes it to be so. So it's to say, for example, that Nazi anti-Semitism was morally wrong, even though the Nazis who carried out the Holocaust thought that it was good. And it would still be wrong, even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in exterminating and or brainwashing everyone else who um, disagreed with them. So as the claim in the absence of God, moral values are not objective in this sense. Many theists and atheists alike concur on this point. Okay, the late J.L. Mackey of Oxford, again, not a Christian organization, one of the most influential atheists of our time, admitted, quote, if there are objective values, they make the existence of a God more probable than it would have been without them. Thus, we have a defensible argument from morality to the existence of a God. But in order to avoid God's existence, Mackey therefore denied that objective moral values exist. He wrote, quote, It is easy to explain this moral sense as a natural product of biological and social evolution. We'll get into that. How much sense does it make to have morality as a byproduct of evolution? What purpose would it serve according to the theory of evolution? Michael Ruse, a philosopher of science, agrees. He explains, Morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is actually an illusion. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they're referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such a reference is truly without foundation. Okay, morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. So where does that thought lead to? With what is happening today, this logic with morality diminishing and people becoming, what's the term today? More woke? Simply means that we are literally de-evolving. Wouldn't you agree? According to that theory, right? But that completely flies in the face of evolution. What's the whole idea of evolution? We're getting stronger, bigger, faster, smarter. You know, I mean, we're, we're improving. But if absolute morality was a byproduct of evolution, and we are now seeing the deconstruct of absolute morality, then it would completely have to shift. We would have to be de-evolving by their own admission, by their own standards. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great 19th century atheist. It was on the cover of Time magazine in 1968. God is dead, right? That was his philosophy. They had finally killed God. They had exterminated any and all logical or rational belief that God exists. He understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I happen to agree with Nietzsche at that point, if that premise were true. But we must be absolutely very careful here. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I don't think that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I think that we can. It doesn't come into a play as far as the existence of God. So rather the question is, if God doesn't exist, do objective moral values exist? Does that make sense how we're differentiating that? So like Mackey and Ruse, I don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, human morality is actually objective. After all, if there's no God, then what's so special or great about human beings? They're just accidental byproducts. 
of nature and which have evolved relatively recently in the grand scheme of things, or an in, on an infinitesimal speck of dust lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe in which we are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. So, on the atheistic view, some action, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of evolution has become taboo. Now that doesn't make sense, right? But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really, really wrong. On the atheistic view, apart from the social consequences, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. It just happens to be societally in unacceptable at that point, that somehow has evolved. However, I would postulate that this view is actually um, improves the social situation. How? So the, the evolutionist at this point is saying that, that rape is somehow societally wrong, and that morality has evolved throughout history. However, does anyone know the theory of, of evolution, how that works, survival of the fittest? Exactly. So follow me on this one. They're saying that rape is societally wrong, and it's a, a byproduct of, of absolute morality evolving throughout the years. However, if that were true, that leads to a false premise, because if you're going with just the theory of evolution and the strongest will survive, rape at that point would be a societally beneficial function. How would it be beneficial? Well, it would produce stronger surviving, in this case, victims, right, that can fight, have more strength, it repopulates, so it becomes a beneficial action if evolution were true, because you have these beings now that can are stronger, um, more defensible in their, their thought processes, and you're repopulating. Do you guys begin to see how horrific these ideas lead down to, right? Thus, without God, there's no absolute right and wrong, which imposes itself on our conscience, Romans 1. So, but the problem is that objective values do absolutely exist, and deep down, we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. The reasoning of ruse at best proves that only our subjective perception of objective moral values has evolved, meaning that we're taking a look at it and we're trying to understand it, not that it itself is actually subjective. Does that make sense? That it exists wholeheartedly apart from our understanding of it. If someone were to believe with all of their heart that two plus two equals seven, are they right? No. We know that that is independent outside of whatever their beliefs are. Two plus two will always be four. And no, math is not racist, okay? <laughs> there are crazy ideas happening today. Most of us think that we do apprehend objective values. So as Ruse himself confesses, the man who says that it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. This was the atheist that said this, right? So he absolutely believes that objective moral values exist, but why they come to exist, that's where he and I differ. He believes they came to exist through evolutionary processes. I believe they came to exist through a holy, righteous God that established them at the beginning. Actions like rape, torture, child abuse aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They are moral abominations. Everyone in the world actually recognizes that. Some things are really, really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, and self-sacrifice are really good. But if the objective values cannot exist without God, and objective values do exist, then it follows logically and inescapably that God 
himself does exist. So we summarize the argument like this. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. And we'll get into the converse of that next week because I think I'm running out of time. Yeah, pretty close. Um, so I know we went over a lot uh, today. Any questions at all about any of this stuff? Is it uh, too, is it good? <laughs> okay, Mrs. Kirk. <laughs> In this case, until we get on, on the other side, this is going to equal good and bad. Um, this isn't going to equal evil yet. It will later on. Good question. It equals good and bad, but not evil? Not yet. Because we're going to be jumping the gun if, if I answer it equals evil. Because the idea, the problem of evil. So you guys see a theme, right? How we're coming up with these arguments. If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist, therefore God exists. Well, the converse has been presented throughout history. It's called the problem of evil or the, the theodicy problem. How does that argument go on, on the other spectrum? If God is a good and moral God, he would not want evil to exist. Evil exists, therefore God does not exist. Or the personality of God is misunderstood. So... I just didn't want to jump there yet because that's, that's next week. But we'll get into it, okay, the, the problem of evil. And a lot of people have that question, why does evil exist? Well, I'll give you a little bit of a preview for next week. The mere fact that evil exists actually proves the existence of God. How is that, you say? How can evil existing in the world actually prove the existence of God? Well, as we gave these horrific examples, if someone were to rape and eat a family member... At that point, you can only say, I prefer you not to do that. But we would not say that. We would call that action evil, right? I don't know anyone alive that would not call that action evil. They absolutely would. By them, in fact, calling that action evil, they are alluding to an absolute goodness in um, complete opposition to that. Therefore, inadvertently proving the existence of God by calling that action evil. Does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So any other questions so far? Because next week uh, we're going to make sense of some of the historical facts concerning the life and death and resurrection of Christ as we continue on our existence of God uh, theme here. Any others? <laughs> Was it too much? Could you just summarize like, yeah. in, like a sentence apiece? Yeah. I think you gave three arguments. Right. Can you, in one, like, one sentence or two sentences each, can you just give us the... Yeah, you bet, Gabe. Just for our note-taking sakes... <laughs> okay whatever begins and to exist has to have a cause the universe began to exist therefore the universe has a cause right and we don't need to go over all of the um, proofs of the universe having a beginning or existence right okay next thing uh where are we at here the fine tuning of the universe due to either physical necessity chance or design it's not due to physical necessity or chance, therefore it is actually due to design. Why isn't it due to physical necessity or chance? Well, we went over lots of proofs for that, right? Um, physical necessity, there's too many variableness inside of the universe itself to mean that it always has to be this way. And chance, we went over those numbers. It's, it's ludicrous to even comprehend those numbers. And then the last one that we just went over, the moral argument. 
If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist as we have reasonably proved in my mind, therefore God exists. Does that help? Okay. Is it time for us to, yeah, yeah, about 10 minutes. Any other questions, guys? No? Do you want us to go a little lower uh, next time? Not deeper, but, but lower. I know um, the existence of God is, is heavy-duty stuff, especially when it gets in, into philosophy and, and uh, uh, science. But trust me, you are going to come across these people in your conversations. Um, you absolutely will, right? Especially in the university world. These, these arguments are very, very prevalent uh, in the university. We should do a, a video with you where you have the, the apologist describes the existence of, the philosophical argument of the existence of God to a college graduate, a high school senior, <laughs> a, a junior high kid, and a six-year-old. Like, we should do all those levels. <laughs> I mean, that would actually kind of be cool. Because, yeah, we can definitely do that because I would really like for us to be able to teach our kids, even when they're still young, not of university age, how to answer these questions that are going to come to them. Because they're going to have friends. My nephew right now has his very best friend that denies the existence of God based on philosophical reasons. What's his philosophical reasons? Evil exists. Bad stuff happens. And they are 13, 12, 12. Well, that's a pretty young age to think about heavy-duty stuff, right? Well, let's pray, guys. Father, Father, thank you so much for just letting us gather here today, Lord. Um, I pray that this, this information, I know it's not easy, God, but you would just give us understanding and uh, insight into it, and that would be, uh, be able to use it, Lord, for your glory and, and perhaps to go out and witness. And please bless the rest of our day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.